ability to rest in you for your gift to us, Lord. We praise you, God, for this morning, for all going on in every life within this church. God, um, we hold up the pain, the physical pain, the financial pain, the relationship pain. You know the people that are hurting, God. Speak to them, hold them, and show us when to reach out to a brother and a sister. Give us words to say. We want you to use us, Lord. And we know that even in our painlessness,
Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the Hoya Community Church. My name is Ian O'Mara. I'm the director of Community Life. My name is Dominic Nuncio. I'm the executive pastor of Ministries. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Whether this is your first time or you've been here since the inception of the church, we're so glad you're here. We want to draw your attention to our lovely mud pit outside, and we're going to be having an obstacle course after church. So uh, belly crawls, all that kind of fun stuff. We've got a Tough Mudder happening. So uh, please pardon our construction. We are just weeks away from being completed in phase one of our construction project that many of you have given to, and we're so excited to just have our welcome center open where many of you are already gathering. We have our Pathways class. It's, it's going to be an incredible ministry that's going to be happening as a result of this construction. So pardon our mud. Our mud, yeah. Here at La Jolla Community Church, we equip everyday people to walk with Jesus every day. And one of the ways we start that process is through our connection card. So if you have a bulletin, go ahead and hold it high. Higher. All right. More participation? Okay, good. So if you have that, this is your first-time guest. If you're a first-time guest, come see us after the service because we have a gift for you. If this is your home or you're a regular attender, please fill that out. If you have questions, we want to hear from you. And the question left unasked is the one that's left unanswered. So let let us know what your question is, what's going on. There's a lot happening here at La Jolla Community Church, and we want to hear from you. And this is the way to connect with us. On the back of that same form, there's a prayer request form. And many of you have responded to that, and we love as a staff and as a church praying for you. We can't connect with each of you face-to-face on a weekly basis, but this is a tangible way that we can connect and come alongside each of you. So would you take a moment even now to write a prayer request of your own or somebody in your life that has the need for prayer? And every Tuesday as a staff, we'll take the time to pray for you, come alongside you, and there's also a prayer team that will pray with you. So we value that. We treasure that time. And the ushers will come by at the end of the service when they collect, when they receive the offering. And that's the time that you could put that in the basket or that we have a little box in the back. Or you could find one of us and just pass it to us. Well, there's a lot of stuff happening here. We want to draw your attention to a few things. But if you miss anything, it's always in your bulletin or you can come check out our website, ljcc.org. But Ian, take us away. Holy Week. Well, Holy Week is right around the corner. This is when we start to celebrate Jesus' death and his resurrection. And this year for Monday, Thursday, we usually do a service, but we want to do something different. We wanted everybody to get together with their family, with their friends, with their neighbors, with their coworkers, and celebrate that meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And here in the Welcome Center, where you have this Holy Week, it says Holy Week in the front. This is a Monday, Thursday program. So we want to encourage you to get together with your friends. Set up a potluck, set up a dinner yourself, invite people to come. And if you're thinking right now, I just don't know. Like, what do I do for a Monday, Thursday? I might even know what Monday, Thursday is. Well, if you need that information or you want to know how to set it up, this is the program for you. Step one, invite people. Step two, pray about it. Oh, yeah, buy food. (laughs) And then pray, pray, pray. So we have little steps broken out. This is a great information and resource. And if you don't know much about Monday, Thursday, come check this out. This is in our Welcome Center. It's sitting right there. You can grab it after the service. So the next day, Friday, is Good Friday. I actually call it Bad Friday. The first one was not a Good Friday, but now it's good in light of Jesus' resurrection. But we're going to celebrate the last seven words of Christ on March 30th from 630 to 7:30. This is a family service, all ages welcome. For those parents or grandparents that are thinking of bringing their kids, just know that it won't be graphic in nature, but we will be talking about the death and crucifixion of Jesus. So just a, for you to use that at your discretion, but it's going to be a beautiful, powerful time where we'll come together, learn about the sting of death so that we can go to Easter. And three days later, 
Spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the dead. Victory is taken. Well, we are going to be doing our services, our celebrations of Easter at 8 a.m., 9, 30, and 11. So if you're used to coming to 9, you could, we would encourage you to come to the 8. But if you show up for the 9, you're going to be late for the 8 and early for the 9, 30. So write down these times, 8, 9, 30, and 11 a.m. It's going to be great. Uh, we have a lot of people expected to come. I know many people have been praying for someone to invite, praying for many people to invite. This is the time to actuate that and start tell, telling those people, hey, I got a service for you, 8 a.m., 9.30. If you're inviting me, invite me to the 11. That's mm -hmm. probably when I'll get up. But this is, this is that opportunity. And, and just a word for parents, and that is that programming for students and children will happen at all three services. So your kids will have a spectacular time and a wonderful program there. So I encourage you to come to that. Uh, last week, I drew many of your attention to a block party. We're celebrating Easter. We're throwing a party for our community. And many of you responded. We want to put that word out again for those who haven't yet. Many of you said, hey, I can't come that day. That's okay. There's many opportunities to partner with us in this ministry. By giving gifts, we're, we're needing uh, gift cards, maybe a $5 Starbucks gift card. We might need movie tickets. We might need plastic Easter eggs or candy. There's many ways to get involved if you can't come and give an hour of your time that weekend. My hope for this church is that we'll see 100% participation in this event to love our community, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, and invite people to the gospel message that they'll hear on Easter. So please sign up. There'll be iPads out on the patio right after service. Look for me. I'll be standing with an iPad. And he's Ian, not Dominic. Sometimes we get mixed up. but <laughs> So uh, with that, guys, we have a special guest. Came back from the Sea of Galilee to be with us here this morning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Would you welcome our senior pastor, Steve Murray. Well, good morning on this beautiful day. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I am living between time zones right now. I'm, I'm, i got a foot in Jerusalem and a foot here, and it's just a beautiful blur. So it's just nice being here with all of you. Uh, in fact, just to make any of you who have been in Israel recently feel at home, let me just say good morning, Boker Tov. You can say Boker Tov. Say Boker. Tov. Boker is morning. Tov is good. So Boker Tov, you're now fluent Israeli Hebrew speakers. So if you're in the Mideast, you're ready. Um, I can't believe this is March. It's March already. How is uh, 2018 going for you thus far? Uh, you're just getting the Christmas tree down by now. And uh, uh, can you relate to this prayer request? This is a 2018 prayer request. Dear God, for 2018, all I ask for is a big, fat bank account and a slim body. Please do not mix up the two like you did last year. Maybe, maybe you feel the same way. Uh, the year isn't quite going how I was hoping it would go, uh, or maybe it's going better than you thought. In any case, uh, the Lord is working in you if you are opening your heart and your mind to him. Uh, the Lord is working in you. He is not confused. Uh, he is not distracted. He does not make mistakes. Uh, he wants us to be in a relationship with him that changes the way that we see our life, that we prioritize uh, what's important to us in life, and that we feel free to live fully uh, like never before. So today, uh, toward that end, I want to talk about three words to live by. It comes out of this text. We've been going through these two letters, First uh, and Second Timothy. Uh, a man named Paul, was in a, he was a, a, a rabbi, Saul, comes to know Christ uh, as Lord and Savior. He then says, you know, I think God's called me to take this message about Jesus being the fulfillment of Israel's hope and promise uh, to the Gentiles as well as to Jews. And so 
the Apostle Paul uh, from Rabbi Saul uh, now is, is writing to Timothy, his protege, who's a young pastor in uh, what is modern-day Turkey, but uh, the city of Ephesus, one of the great cities of the ancient world, the only city in the ancient world that had a bank. It was a massively wealthy place, probably second only to Rome in terms of its status, uh, stature. And so in the first letter to Timothy, uh, you know, Paul is coaching him. Since the second, the, the first letter, in the second letter, Paul is, is in different circumstances, and things have gotten even worse for Timothy. Um, so the first word I want to talk about is grace. Three words, grace, truth, and love. So the first word is grace. And our, grace, our, our response to grace uh, makes a big difference in how we experience life. So Paul says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you can see that. You can't really see that image probably, but it's a picture of, uh, first of all, the, the, the first picture that, that on, the, on the word grace was that uh, Rembrandt picture of the, of the prodigal son, one of the most iconic paintings ever done. And, and the power of that is that the son who has squandered his inheritance, he had the audacity to say, Dad, I know you're not dead, but I'd like my inheritance because I'm out of here. And he left, he squanders the money, and he comes to this point in his life uh, when he's really hit bottom. He says, you know, I don't even deserve to be a son anymore. I think I'll go home and ask if I can be a slave. Uh, and the father, of course, greets him warmly. So that's a setup for grace, that, that God invites us into a relationship with him even if we don't deserve it, uh, even if we don't think we're worthy of it. And so <clears throat> Paul then says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the image here is of a guy uh, climbing a rock. He's rock climbing. And he's in this very precarious crux kind of a move where he's got one hand uh, on the top of this knob of rock and is in, 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 the, in the force of the you know, gravity and the, and the angle of the rock is pushing him out. But you, in the picture that I have, it shows he's connected to a line. He's connected to an 11-millimeter rope. He's on belay. And so he has the courage to take this radically acrobatic gymnastic kind of a move on this rock, knowing that if he falls, uh, he's not going to fall very far. And so God wants us to be strong in his grace. Grace is sort of a weak word in our culture. Uh, it's a secondary kind of a word. It's not a primary word. Uh, but for, for, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for this good news about what God has done and is doing in the word, grace is an essential, powerful word. Uh, it's, somebody once said it's an acronym for this phrase, God's riches at Christ's expense. God makes all of his resources available to us through his grace. It's a powerful, powerful word. And <clears throat> so Paul um, says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, and because of that, in verse 2, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to trust others. So so this thing that they're experiencing, we would call it Christianity, but Christianity is really um, an unfortunate term now because it's been so compromised by cultural chaos and confusion. But this movement of God's spirit, promised to the people of Israel, and now fulfilled in Jesus, called the Christ, the Greek word for Messiah, is a movement of God's spirit that is meant to be transformational. It's a radical engagement of God in the world that he created and that has, has fallen. Is, is fallible, is in disarray because of this thing called sin. And sin isn't just, I did something bad, I did something wrong. It's a whole orientation that, that causes us to just to feel like life is just out of reach. Just out of reach. Uh, like the prayer, the silly prayer, you know, on a fat bank account, a slim body. It always feels like it's just the opposite, or there's some version of life that I don't like. I was talking to a young professor 
between services. He got his PhD here, was part of this congregation, went back east. He's in some prestigious university. And he said, oh, it's, it's, I said, how's it going? He said, I love my job. I hate the hierarchy of academia. You know, it's no fun being the least, you know, the most junior, least senior person. Um, and so he's, he's saying, wow, you know, um, life is, is all the, even the best things. I got this PhD. I got the dream job. And it's just still not quite there. That's the world we live in and the world that God has come uh, personally in uh, to redeem, to save, to set right. And so Paul is saying, look, the things you've heard and learned from me, uh, pass them on to other people. This is not just a private thing. Faith is not a private thing. It's an intensely personal thing, but it's meant to have a massive social impact. And we're going to talk about how, what that looks like as we go forward. But the question I want to ask you is, how do we functionally experience God's grace? If our perception of it is sort of a weak thing, grace, all right, is that like being nice? Do you have to become Canadian? I mean, what, what's the, you know, what, what happens? Basically what it is, is learning to, to know God's ways, to walk in God's ways in such a way that we're able to teach others his ways. You know something is really good when other people want you to show them how to use it or where to get it. Wow, where did you get that? How do you do that? I want that, right? When, when, when something goes viral because people just say, this meets a very real need. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news of Jesus, is meeting a very real human need. It's obscured by so many other things uh, over time, uh, like, like barnacles on a boat that make the boat go slow in the water, seaweed on the rudder. You think, I'm in a boat that's supposed to be going somewhere fast, but it's really slow. Well, the impediments to the gospel have been cultural things that have diluted it. But when you see the gospel for what it is, as Paul is talking to Timothy, saying, this is so powerful, be strong in it. Be strong in it. And as you become strong in it, you're going to be in a place to allow other people to connect with it as well. Something, something beautiful is going to come out of you that people are going to say, I want that. What is that? I've never seen that. And so by God's grace, each one of us can become a reliable and qualified messenger of his grace. Not salespeople making a pitch, but people saying, you know, let me tell you about what I've been experiencing. It's really, really good. So God calls us uh, into a transformational learning community to make that happen. The church is really meant to be a, a transformational community, not a place where people come and do religious things. It's where people come because there's life here. There's life here because God is here, and not just here in this place, but when you, when you start to connect with God, you feel alive. And so the idea of a church is it's a transformational community of people learning to um, appropriate and, and, and understand and apply these incredible things uh, that God's word promises and, and that what Jesus demonstrates in his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so the church is, is, this, is this movement of God's spirit. And, and you, know, you know the word ecclesiastical? Uh, that, that means, uh, that that's, talks about church type stuff. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. It means to call out. So God is calling out. Come on in. Come on in. This is for you. Come on in. And, and when we come on in, we, we start to understand his ways. We start to think like he thinks. We start to appreciate the priorities that he prioritizes, like people over stuff, like love over hate, like freedom over uh, you know, slavery, uh, like righteousness over the confusion that causes self-destruction and the destruction of cultures and families and nations. So they, we're called in to be sent out. 
So that's what he's saying here. You be strong in this grace, and the things you've heard me say, you'll be able to pass on to other people who will be able to pass it on to other people. It's a movement of God's spirit, not an institution that's trying to recruit members. Sometimes uh, folks in churches see church as a zero-sum game. You're competing with other churches for people. Uh, it's a very small, irrelevant view of what the church is. The church is a movement of God's spirit. And so in a sense, we don't care where people go to church. We just want them to be connected in a community that is transformational. And if it's here, awesome. If there's another place that works better for you or closer to home, fantastic. And so that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. This is so powerful. Uh, and he gives three examples of, of how powerful it is. He says, endure hardship with us like a, a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, <clears throat> this is a, a profoundly powerful image for anybody in the first century. Why? Because Rome dominates. Rome dominates. And so, not in a militaristic sense, not in a violent sense, he's saying, think of it like being a soldier. A soldier faces all kinds of challenges. Why? They believe in the mission. And if you've ever been a soldier in whatever armed forces uh, branch of service you've been in, you know that at some point it's unit cohesion that makes all the difference. It's not even the ideal of freedom anymore. It's that these people in my unit are the ones that I want to uh, be strong for and to support. Unit cohesion is everything. Because when people are connected, they're willing to sacrifice and suffer. Why? Because they care. They care not just for the people around them, they care about the mission so much so that they'll say, what is it we can do and do better to fulfill our mission? That's the picture of a soldier that Paul is throwing out to Timothy. He also throws out this, offers up this analogy, this metaphor of an athlete. He says, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. There's an inherent discipline to being an elite athlete. Uh, if you were talking to some elite athlete and you said, hey, I, I heard that you shaved a minute off your best time in an event that's measured in seconds. What did you do? Well, I found that if I cut this corner, it was awesome. I could get ahead of the other runners. You go, wait, wait, wait. Did you say you cut a corner? You mean you cheated? Well, I'd call it a creative application of the environment. I, <laughs> I just used the geography and topography to give myself, you know, go, you're lying, you're cheating. So the discipline of an athlete isn't cheating. It's saying, what would it look like to, to perfect my skill, uh, to align all these factors so that I can do what I do at the highest possible level? That, that's an inherently focused, intentional approach uh, to growth. What's, what's neat about being an athlete at any level is that <clears throat> you realize that if I, if I learn these skills, these techniques, and if I have a good coach, if I stay focused, I, I make progress, and it really feels good to make progress. To do anything at a high level or a higher level uh, feels really good. There's a little boy uh, bowling with his dad, and uh, <clears throat> at the end of the game, the kid goes, Dad, Dad, what was my score? And the dad doesn't know how to tell him how bad he is as a bore. He goes, well, son, it was 40. You know, 300 is the goal, right, in bowling. The kid stops for a second. The dad's thinking, I don't know how he's going to take it. He's waiting for the kid to start crying. The kid goes, that's awesome. I used to be so bad at bowling. <laughs> the kid's making progress, right? And here's his dad, and he's so excited to be able to say, yes, I'm making progress. So Paul's saying, this is what it looks like to be so focused and disciplined, doing something you love. And finally, he says, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. There's an inherent benefit and blessing in being a farmer because you, you go out there and you plow a field in the ugliest time of the year, typically, and you, you watch it just sit there 
And the first green things that come up often are weeds, you know, and then eventually this crop comes out and you get to sell it and share it and eat it. Your family sits around the table. We have our little garden in our front yard. We eat out of that garden every day. I have no idea how the stuff grows. I just love the fact that you can go out there and take some of the vegetables and, and give it away or, or eat it. And so one of the inherent things about what we're called to do in Jesus is, is this discipline that is inherently beneficial to us. We are blessed just by being in this relationship with the living God. And not only that, we get to bless other people. So there's nothing more fun for me uh, when I have the time to walk out and see the garden in the front yard. And as I'm looking at it, marveling at what Janet has done, I, um, and people walk by and they go, wow, what is that thing? You know? and, and it's amazing how disconnected people are from where food comes from. Oh, that's, that would be a cabbage. Seriously? In your yard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, boom, you know, give it to them. And I love giving people. I feel like a one-man uh, you know, farmer's market. Uh, giving stuff to people. Why? Because the joy of it. And this is the joy that Paul is talking to Timothy about. Hey, the seriousness of a soldier, uh, the incredible uh, rush of adrenaline that an athlete experiences, and the joy of a farmer feeding people. That's what we should be thinking about, Timothy. And so he says, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Uh, it's interesting to think about how smart this room of people is. The, 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 the level of education, formally uh, and informally, uh, the, the academic degrees represented here, the, the certifications, insanely impressive. Uh, overall, our nation, very, very impressive. The irony, the paradox to me is that we take so little time to think. We're so well-educated, but we don't take time to think. If somebody walked into your office where you work, the place that you work, and you were just sort of staring off in the distance, sitting there or standing there thinking, they would say, what are you doing? Why aren't you working? You say, well, I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, we'll get back to work. <laughs> okay, then. Paul's saying it's so important that you stop and reflect on these things, Timothy. Information isn't wisdom. Even knowledge isn't wisdom. But, but reflecting deeply is how we become wise. When we're in a situation and, and after being in that situation, maybe it's having dinner with some friends, you, you think about it. Not about how did I come across, what could I have said that would be more witty or insightful, but rather what was going on there? And you start saving. I'm so delighted to be with those people. What a joy to have friends. It was so fun hearing what they were saying. Or you read a book, you watch a movie. Do you think about it afterwards? Do you talk about it afterwards? Or do you just go on to the next thing? We're so busy. We, we, we suffer under the, the epidemic of busyness to the point that it robs us of time to think deeply. And when you start thinking deeply, you grow. You grow. And yet you have to fight for that. You've got to actually schedule time to think. Uh, that's why we tell couples, have a date night. Why a date night? We see each other every day. It's just meant to protect some time when you have no excuse other than to say, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What, what's life like for you? So the big point here about grace, this big word to live by, is that grace does not make life easy. It makes us stronger to face life's challenges. Let that sink in. The reason grace is so profoundly transformational isn't that it makes life easy, it makes us stronger so that we can handle life, we can take on life. We can commit ourselves to things that otherwise would feel overwhelming and ridiculously hard, inconvenient, and probably not worth it. 
So this sets us up um, to have insights through, through thoughtful, prayerful reflection. And, and it leads us to this whole notion of truth. What is truth? If grace is God's um, gift offered to us, God's riches at Christ's expense, here's, here's the life I, I've, I've made you to have. I want to give you this. And now I'm inviting you into a relationship where you can learn the content of that faith. That sets us up for truth. So truth, Paul writes from prison um, <clears throat> and says, here's the fact. I'm in prison. Timothy, here's the fact. You're in a really lousy situation in Ephesus facing huge challenges that feel overwhelming and probably feels like you're about to fail in a big way, big public way. These are the facts, but what's the truth? Here's the truth that defines Paul's life. He says, remember Jesus Christ, not because he was some poetic, interesting, captivating, inspiring, charismatic uh, figure who died too young. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. Timothy, who do you know who has risen from the dead? And if, if right now you're in a place sitting here thinking, well, I'm not sure you did rise from the dead. Uh, is there evidence? Yes, there's evidence. And I, I wish I had the time to give you story after story after story of people who said, there's no way that happened. I'm going to take it on and show how fake it is. And, and story after story after story, investigative journalists, attorneys, you know, uh, thoughtful philosophers, whomever, who've said, I don't believe the, the facts as they're presented. And once they've seen the facts, they say, oh, my God, I think it's true. So beyond that level of belief, he's saying, look, you and I know that we're remembering Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead. He's alive. He's got massive credibility. And not only that, he's descended from David, which means he represents the fulfillment of Israel's hope, God's promise to Israel. A thousand years previously, God promises that David will be, um, in the line of David will be the Messiah that will redeem the world. And so he says, Paul says, this is my gospel. Good news. That word gospel, some of you are very familiar with it. Greek word, euangelion, it just means good news. Uh, the word evangelism or evangelist is one who brings good news. And so when the Roman troops came back victorious from battle, as they paraded through the streets, a, 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 a person would go out ahead of them yelling, euangelion, euangelion, uh, another victory, another triumph. It's good news. We've been victorious. We've achieved our goal. So this is my gospel, Paul says, my good news, for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. It's embarrassing to suffer when you know you're not deserving of it. You know, there's something like 2 to 10% of people in, in our prison and jail system are not guilty. They're not guilty. They're there. They're innocent. And you know all these projects, the Innocence Project, but they can't be, possibly keep up with all the cases that need uh, proper adjudication. Uh, from all kinds of reasons, people end up being uh, imprisoned. But you know, if you're in prison, you're in jail, and you say, I I'm innocent, I, I didn't do it, what is the response? Right now, all of our response is, yeah, right. Sure you didn't. Yeah, you and the other thousands of people. So you can imagine Paul sitting in prison, and the Roman soldiers going, what a loser. What did he do? Uh, and, and what he did was, for them, the equivalent of jaywalking. You know, oh, he's a Jewish guy, and he holds these beliefs about a Jewish guy named Jesus who he claims to be God. He's in prison for that? He's a double loser, you know? And Paul's saying, well, I'm not really a criminal. If you're in jail, in our jail, you're a criminal. 
But he says this, I'm chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. So then what, what do the facts point to? See, Paul is saying, here's the facts, but let me tell you the truth. Do not confuse facts with truth. They're related, but they're not the same. The fact is, um, I know a wonderful young couple who grew up in the same town. So the fact is, they should, you think they'd know each other. The truth is, they didn't meet until after they were out of school or in college. Uh, Paul's facts would be, I'm in prison like a common criminal. But the truth is, Paul is fulfilling his calling like an apostle of Christ. Paul's saying, I'm here because Christ wants me here. The fact is, you're in prison, Paul. He's saying, right, but the truth is, I'm God's representative. Fact, all Paul can do is write letters and pray in prison. It's a pretty small world. Truth, Paul is mentoring Timothy, and Timothy is mentoring others. Who mentored others, who mentored others, who mentored others, who mentored others. Fact, Paul will die in 68 AD under the reign of Nero. Truth, Paul will live forever in Christ and have a continuing impact on generation after generation after generation. I don't know when the last time was you consulted anything written by Nero. <laughs> you said, oh my gosh, I got a big problem. I need to look up that, that passage in Nero's writings because it's going to be so helpful to me. But, but, but we're reading Paul's letter. And we're considering it not just as a letter of a guy in jail with nothing else to do, but as God speaking through him to Timothy and to all the Timothys subsequent. That's the way we have to see truth. We, we come at the facts, but we say, what is the, the tool, the interpretive method we use to make sense of the facts of life? See, God wants to take us from a place where we say life sucks. The people I love die. Things I worked hard for crumble because of betrayal uh, or, or somebody doing something they shouldn't have done. God takes us from a place where we say that to where we say, oh my God, thank you for the mission you've given me. That was, that was Paul. How dare these people say that Jesus is God to now he's saying, I hope everybody gets to know Jesus is God. And so this is the powerful transition that we want uh, everybody to experience. God is using your life and mine such as it is to achieve his purposes. So Paul says in verse 10, Therefore, I endure everything, anything you can throw at me, I endure for the sake of the elect. He's saying, for all these people who God is trying to reach, wants to reach. If he's going to use me, I think that's fantastic. He says that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There's something so big here at stake. It's the thing that has reoriented my life. See, God wants each one of us to be so compelled by his grace, so motivated and equipped and instructed by his truth that we'd say, I am, I am absolutely honored to be part of this mission. No matter what you do every day, you might change diapers, you might sell stuff, you might write contracts, you might do surgeries, you might build buildings, you might you know, do any number of things. But the larger mission that gives your life the ultimate truth is I get to be part of what God is doing to redeem the world. I get to do my job as well as I could possibly do it. And that's the fact. But the larger truth that motivates me is I get to be part of what God is doing. 
which then sets us up, well, let me say it this way. Are you discerning the truth of your life? Are you taking time to discern the truth of your life? I hope you never use the, f- the word just when you talk about your life. I'm just a... But rather you say, by God's grace, I get to be me in the company of his people. Are you discerning the truth of your life? Because once you discern the truth of your life, your life is, is precious to God, is being redeemed by him for a purpose in the midst of the actual circumstances in which you live, then all of a sudden you are in a place to extend that to other people. Out of the credibility of you living an authentic life in Christ, all of a sudden you have something to offer other people that is transformational for them too. If you want that kind of life, you've got to start viewing your circumstances from the perspective of God's word, not just what the world tells you, even what your feelings tell you about your life. We live in a world that that wants us to start thinking of our life in terms that that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really measure up. It doesn't really matter much. And once you're out of the limelight, you're out. Once you're out of the money, you're out. Once you're out of the whatever, you're out. God is saying your life is so precious. Don't miss your life because of some facts that would give you a head fake. Understand the truth of your life being absolutely essential to the work that God is doing in this world. Which then sets us up for the last thing. Uh, Paul is single-minded in his love of God and his love for people. Why? Because of the grace he's experienced and because of the truth he's come to know. And so he says this, keep reminding people of these things, in verse 14, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. He's saying there's this, this thing that we have as human beings where we want to be right. One of the most impressive theologians I ever met uh, incredible, incredible man. He taught at Westmont College. He taught at Fuller Seminary. Uh, he was just a brilliant scholar, wrote so many books. Uh, he influenced so many people. Um, he was impressive in every way. I mean, he, was like, he looked like he could have played you know, middle linebacker at the, in the NFL, first of all. And he was just a fantastic guy, a Renaissance man. And he said this. He said one of the most profound things I've ever heard. He said, you know, Steve, we all want to be right rather than loved. We all want to be right. We want to have the first and last word. We want to impress everybody with what we know. He, you know, if you're living in the academic world, it's the world's last caste system. It's all about academic ranking. And he was at the top of the heap, and he said, it's irrelevant if we don't know how to love. What you know is interesting, but irrelevant if it's not linked to love. And so words are important, but how we use words is more important than the words themselves sometimes. So we don't use words as weapons, but we offer them as gifts of grace and truth. Otherwise, Paul says, it's of no value and only ruins those who listen. This word ruin is literally the word catastrophe. This is one of those words you can pluck right out of the Greek. That's the word we use in English, catastrophe. A catastrophe is this. It's a tragedy that remains tragic. Every great movie, every great book you ever read is a tragedy that gets transformed, right? That's why we like a great book. All this big conflict, you go, oh, no, what's going to happen? It'll never work. It's all lost, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's resolved. That's what makes a, a, a great, a great epic story. But Paul's saying, you know, if, if we just use words as weapons, we create a, an unresolved tragedy. It ruins 
community. It ruins conversations. We tear down rather than build up. It's the wrong way to tell our story. The true power of God's word revealed in Jesus Christ turns tragedy into triumph. And so words matter deeply. I, I love words. I just love words. I love reading. I love thinking about ideas. So do you. But at some point, if, if we don't learn to love, our words are hollow and empty and absolutely damaging. And so Paul is saying, ultimately, keep reminding people of these things, these things like grace and truth, and not just getting into these little power plays by which we mug people uh, for good purposes. See, you don't argue people into love. You woo them into love by demonstrating it. I remember the wonderful couple yesterday, and if you asked them, you know, why do you want to marry her, he wouldn't say, because she threatened me. She said she'd beat me up, you know. Um, he intimidated me into, you know, no. He said, I just, I love them because they, be, uh, who they are. I didn't even know them. I didn't even think about them. One minute, and next minute as I got to know them, I thought, I want to smell my life with this person. We're wooed into love, aren't we? We're drawn into those friendships. Why? Something happens in us uh, that, that we would describe in terms of feelings. But really what it is, there's a sense of well-being, a sense of being honored and respected, a sense of somebody being interested in us. And when they ask us a question, they actually listen for our response. They seem to be sensitive to our moods, uh, to the highs and lows of our life. I mean, they have a life of their own. They're not trying to live through us, but there's something about them that brings the best out in us. They make us want to be a better version of us, right? So Paul's saying, that's what this grace and truth is all about. And so he's talking to Timothy, who's dealing with people who are using all these words to obfuscate the gospel, to accrue power for themselves, to dominate people, in ways that are absolutely foreign to the gospel. So Jesus came proclaiming and teaching and demonstrating the saving love of God. Did he talk about the judgment to come? Yes. Did he talk, did he talk about the wrath of God, that is God's glory being so weighty without God's love and grace supporting us, it would crush us? Yes, he did. But it was all about a transformational love that he's offering the world. His life, his death, his resurrection are a redemptive message of grace and truth and love. Therefore, Paul is saying to Timothy, ours should be likewise. We never compromise or dilute the truth or deny grace for the sake of a faux sort of peace. That's not what Paul is saying. We don't become passive. Oh, yeah, whatever you believe is fine. But in our absolute conviction that God's grace is essential for life and his truth is the ultimate truth that allows us to make sense of the facts of life, then all of a sudden how we use words wisely conveyed in love becomes super important. Because ultimately, it's the truth of that love coming through our lives that causes people to take our words seriously. I can't tell you how many times I've met with couples who are trying to reconcile. And the big block for them, typically male or female, depending on which one is feeling the most aggrieved, is trust. They just can't trust that person one more time to break their heart, to let them down, to make them feel foolish. You know how hard it is to establish trust? How easy it is to lose it? So, I can, so I've had any number of guys say to me, hey, hey I need your help. Uh, what, what, what can I do to help you? Well, I need you to tell me what to say to get my wife back. And I'll say, you know what? Here's what I would say to you. It's not going to happen. Well, you're some great pastor. All I'm telling you is this. You just asked me, how, what words can I use to get my wife back? 
You're asking me to come up with some phony story, fake news that your wife will buy. You're making me complicit in your stupidity. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I guess now that you mention it, you know. <laughs> what do I need to do then? You need to learn how to love her. You need to grow in your capacity to love. She just might notice, if you're serious about growing in your capacity to love, that she wants to take another look. And if she starts to believe that you're actually learning how to love, she might actually start trusting you enough to say, I'd like to take another look at this relationship. You follow that? Now, we do this every day in relationships anyway. We, we recover from little hurts and slights and disappointments. But it's love that allows us to do that. It's not the killer argument. So when a person comes to know Christ, it's usually not because somebody had a killer app argument. Hey, what did that guy say to you to make you finally accept Jesus? Well, it wasn't really what he or she said to me. It's that the way their life looked, I saw them, and it was so authentic, I started to take their words very seriously. So that's where we are in this. May our words reflect grace as we correctly speak the truth in love. Our message is meant to be redemptive, not arrogant, argumentative, antagonistic. We can have deep, strong convictions. We can confront falsehood. We can talk about injustice. We can be very serious about confronting evil in the world. But again, we do it out of this motivation of love. And redemptive basically means building bridges rather than barriers. And so he says in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Here, here's the takeaway. As we learn how to handle God's word wisely, to understand it wisely, to live into it wisely, uh, to be gracious in the way that we relate to other people. Uh, God's word is a true message of grace and love. If it's a true message of grace and love, it ought to look like grace and love in our lives. Even when we're having big disagreements on things and arguments about things that matter to us. And so here's the challenge for us, the takeaway. Becoming faithful and reliable and qualified in handling this word. Why is that important? Why is that so important that you would rearrange your priorities and your time to become more conversant about God's word? More connected to it, more committed to letting God lead you into living it out one day at a time. Because it's not just going to bless you, it's going to bless the people around you. You want to have a better marriage? Start with God's word. You want to have a better career? Start with God's word. You want to have a better anything? Start with God's word. It will reorder your thinking. It will reorder your priorities. It'll make you a different person even doing the same things you're, you're, you do anyway. Because all of a sudden, God's word will not just give you information. It'll make you wise. It'll alert you to the fact that there's a God who loves you and his powerful love wants to love through you other people as well. That is a, the greatest gift we can possibly give to each other in marriage, as parents, as friends, as colleagues, as citizens in a, in a country, as members of a culture. I hope this resonates with you. If, if your view of God is big, this is going to make total sense to you. If your view of God is small, this is going to sound completely irrelevant. I pray for you and for me that we would have a much bigger view of God. It would take our breath away. We'd say, thank God. Thank God that he loves me this much and been, been this patient with me to draw me into this relationship that sets my mind ablaze with the possibilities of life, that opens my heart to people I maybe wouldn't have even cared about, that allows me to be real about what I struggle with in ways that allows people to, to minister to me. So Lord Jesus, that's my prayer. That your grace, your truth, your love would describe us and define us.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, Pastor Steve. What a great message. So many, so many truths to pull out of there. And the, what hit me deeply was this, this idea that we're all Timothys and we all have a part to play. That we're all part of this process. That we're the Timothys of today, but the Timothys of tomorrow and the Timothys of yesteryear have all played a part in moving forward this gospel. And it made me think that we all have a part to play, no matter what status we are in life. If we're, I'm thinking of a 17th century monk who was a dishwasher, who people still read his book today. He played a part, but he didn't really see it at that point. What part do we play in the gospel? What part do we play in this grace, in this truth? And as the ushers come forward, this moves us to a time of tithes and offering. And if this, you call LJCC your home, this is our opportunity to rejoice, to be part of the, the gospel movement that he has here in this area, in the UTC area, La Jolla area. That he's bringing light into the darkness through all of the Timothys in this room. So let us pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for everything you're doing here in our community and what you're doing in our lives as we wrestle with your grace in our own lives and we, and we pay it forward to others as we wrestle with the truth. Lord, we pray that we would seek your word, that it would be the mark of our life, that we would reflect you and seek after you. Lord, we just thank you for all you're doing here. And we give this all to you in your holy and precious name. Amen.
kind of makes you feel maybe how Moses felt uh, when God said, you know you're standing on holy ground, right? Yeah. yeah. So thank you for taking us into God's presence. So uh, that music lifts us up uh, to have a clear shot uh, at the face of God. Uh, and he wants to take us from this place out into the world to actually live into what we've been talking about today. As we've been praying, as we've been singing, as we've been thinking about God's word. Why? He wants us to be part of this revolution of love, this transforming people and couples and families and communities and cultures because this is what we were made for and this is what we yearn for. It's not about religion, it's about life. It's not about rules, it's about a relationship with the living God. It makes everything different. And so now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore, one day at a time, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.